Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. We have found communities that just embrace us with all kinds of queer people and straight people, families that have come together in all kinds of ways. It affords our son the opportunity to see and feel and touch and learn from people who look like him, people who don't look like him, people who have similar stories to his, people whose stories he could have never have imagined otherwise. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Sarah. On this edition of Outcasting, Outcaster Jamie speaks with LGBTQ activist and consultant Gabriel Blau about his experience as a gay parent. Gabriel talks about growing up gay and shares his experiences with adoption. He also discusses the importance and privilege of finding the right community in which to make his life. This is the first in an outcasting series on gay parenting. Gabriel, in the interest of disclosure, we should mention that you're a member of our advisory council. So thanks for that, and welcome to Outcasting. Thank you so much for having me. Has your family been supportive of you, both as a gay man and as a gay parent? Yeah, I've been very lucky. Uh, I grew up with a pretty progressive family and community. And while I struggled in a variety of ways, personally and certainly experienced homophobia in a variety of ways growing up in the 80s and 90s, my family did accept me and has been there with me all along. That is, of course, not the experience of so many LGBTQI people in this country. But for me, uh, my family has really been an important part of my journey. What kind of homophobia did you experience as you were growing up? Well, you know, homophobia takes a lot of different forms. And I think for me, the persistent, even latent forms were very uh, difficult to decode and stuck with me for a long time. Uh, Watching the news as a child in the 80s, where gay people were only talked about as sick and as dying and as plague-ridden and as pedophiles is something that has taken me a long time to get over because it was just part of the world around me being taunted and called names by classmates, the constant use of gay and as and queer as a slur, you know, created an environment in which I didn't want to be out, in which I didn't want to be gay, in which I didn't want to be me. And that's difficult for any person to deal with, being bullied or beat up by other kids because they just knew I was different. Those are things that just are too common and remain too common in schools and among our youth. Why do you think some people believe that homosexual people shouldn't have or raise children? There's a long history of defending, defining, and fighting for what is what constitutes a family. It dates back really well before this country was founded and well before modern times. All faith traditions that I'm aware of have taken it upon themselves to define family in a variety of ways. And the importance of defining family 
cannot be overstated in many ways because how we define family impacts today, for example, are laws of who's responsible for who and who gets access and privilege in relation to who else. I think a lot of people are scared when they see what they're used to as family being redefined or what they see as redefinition because it it threatens what they understand the world to be like and what they think the world is supposed to be like. I think change is scary for people. But my being a parent doesn't really impact other people's ability to be a parent. And I've often wondered why is it that someone would care if their children saw me and my husband with our child, how it would impact their own children and their family. But by seeing us on the street, seeing us in the playground, seeing us in their school, they are forced to accept that what their family looks like isn't the only model, the only picture of what a family can look like. And what they believe and what their faith tradition or social and communal traditions have held up as family just aren't the only model. And the truth is we've seen this bear out in research over and over again that when people see families like mine, when they see us in action, they begin to understand. They see more commonalities and differences. They don't feel so threatened. When they see us take care of our child, they realize that we're doing exactly what they're doing. When they see our child look to us for security, for comfort, they see what their children do. And they begin to just understand us the way they understand their own family. That's been borne out over and over again in research. And it was critical to achieving much of the equality we've achieved legally. We used to think that in order to achieve equality for LGBTQI people, we had to not show LGBTQI people in their families. We had to show our parents, our friends, our allies talking about us, these third-party validators. And it was effective, but it wasn't as effective as we needed it to be. And so despite our own market research and, you know, trying to strategize, we started showing our families and it turned out that that was far more effective, that when people saw us, they couldn't hate us. They couldn't discriminate against us. Now, all too often, we know people discriminate against us anyway. And that is really painful. When somebody who doesn't know LGBTQI people doesn't believe in my equality, well, that's painful. But I know that once they see me, they'll understand that I'm just a person and we're just a family. But when lawmakers who have seen us, who have experienced our families and our friendships and our communities, who have watched us and know better and know the data, when they fight against us, that is really scary to me because they know that we're just people. And science is also on our side in that case. Science has shown over and over and over again that children raised by gay and lesbian and trans parents are just as likely to be successful in life by a variety of measures as children raised by straight parents. Like the majority of children in this country are not raised by married heterosexual parents who are their biological parents without any kind of medical interventions or or that they're still married or, you know, this idea of what family is actually is the minority experience of America's children. And we, as LGBTQI-headed families, are really part of a 
very vibrant mosaic of American families, families that support each other in all kinds of ways, that come together in all kinds of ways, that are married and not married, that are based on kinship families and adopted families and surrogacy and uh, Haji's medical intervention, uh, children who are brought up by one parent, children who lost a parent, children whose parents are divorced. We've seen all kinds of families succeed, but we do know that the one thing they need in order to succeed is consistency, and we cannot expect America's families to provide that kind of consistency and support to their children if we're not providing our support as government entities and as organizations. We, as a country, need to support families. We have to take care of parents so that they can take care of their children. And that's true no matter what sexuality or gender identity those parents or their children have. So talking about your family, I know that you have adopted a child. How was that process for you? Our family came together um, in 2008. And for us, the process of adopting was incredibly organic and meaningful. It's hard to imagine. And I've, I've had this conversation with lots of parents and with children who have come together in all kinds of ways, that whatever process they chose was an organic, meant-to-be kind of process, where it's hard to imagine their family coming together in any other way or being a family in any other way. It's hard to imagine our son not being our son, and it's hard to imagine not being his parents. We chose adoption uh, early on when we knowing each other before we even were ready to have children, and it was a process that happened a lot faster than we expected it to. Adoption sometimes is, it takes only a few months, and sometimes it takes years. For us, it was just a few months, and the result was just perfect. I really have no other way of saying it. I, I think one of the things that's interesting is that when we became a family and adopted, we, like many LGBTQI parents who adopted that we know, saw ourselves as part of the LGBTQI community. And our experience as adopted parents was, was kind of a secondary identity. But as time has gone on and, and our child has grown and our family has continued to explore ourselves as a family, we've seen ourselves more and more as part of the adoptive community, this very diverse, wide-ranging community in America that has, has chosen adoption as the way they create families. And that's in part because when you adopt, really no matter how you have your children, you have to think about what impact that process has on your child and on your family as a whole. And so whether you use surrogacy or donated sperm or adoption or foster care, there are these communities out there of all kinds of people, rich and poor, LGBTQI and straight, who have been there and have experience and share experiences and talk about what it's like and what it could be like. And it's not just about parents, it's about the youth and what they need. And every family is unique, but there's so much to be learned. And I think this is really one of the amazing things about being part of both of these communities because we span the experiences. It's very common for LGBTQI-headed families to be seen as LGBTQI first, but those experiences as uh, marginalized parents 
really melt into the background when you have a family and you are worried about your children. Because that's what all parents do. We only worry about our children. That's all we care about. And so discovering and becoming part of these other communities is so vital. And it also helps break down these misconceptions or fears or barriers that exist around families like ours. Because these other people that we're meeting in these communities, they see us as a fellow sojourner on this adoption journey, on this family journey. And they recognize that we may look different, but they also look different from what other families look like. And that we have this bond, this decision that we've made to build our families in this way. So for us, it's always what we wanted. It's it's what we did. And it's created a family that I can never imagine not existing. I think the greatest misconception, though, that people who don't adopt have is that adoption is somehow less magical or something. Uh, it is as organic feeling a process as any can be. It has its own twists and turns and uniqueness, and it it happens in its own way every time. And so the end result is one that just feels completely unique and meant to be. Has your local community been accepting? We are so lucky to live in a place where we are accepted and embraced, where we are not the only adoptive family, we're not the only multiracial family, we're not the only LGBTQI-headed family. We have just tremendous diversity where we live. And that's luck and some decisions we've been able to make. So much of the discrimination that people experience in America and all over the world is really about where you're born and what kind of family you're born into. We are lucky to have been born and been able to stay around New York City and to have the kind of privilege that has enabled us to stay here and grow our lives because we have found communities that just embrace us. We belong to an amazing synagogue, Fort Tryon Jewish Center in Washington Heights, that is just a diverse, wonderful community with all kinds of queer people and straight people, families that have come together in all kinds of ways, other multiracial families, other adoptive families, families who use surrogacy, uh, single-parent families and dual-parent families and, and all kinds. We have a school community where our son goes to school that is tremendously diverse, where the families come from everywhere and are of all shapes and sizes, tremendous uh, immigrant community, documented and undocumented, that have become part of our universe and we part of theirs. And our neighborhood in general is tremendously diverse. So we're really just so lucky. And it, it really matters. It's hard to imagine living in a place that isn't diverse because it doesn't just add to our lives in this sort of special extra way. It is a vital part of our lives. It is what enables us to see the world the way we do. It's what enables us to feel supported the way we do. It affords our son the opportunity to see and feel and touch and learn from people who look like him, people who don't look like him, people who have similar stories to his, people whose stories he could have never have imagined otherwise. And it's a richness that is absolutely a privilege, but is also vital to how we are in the world. 
This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcaster Jamie is talking with activist Gabriel Blau about gay parenting. You seem to be very lucky in where you live in with your community, but there are also, as you know, a lot of other people who live in uh, not so diverse areas, areas that aren't so accepting. Do you know anything about that kind of experience as well? I've been very lucky in life that I've gotten to spend most of my career working for equality and justice, and most of it for equality and justice for LGBTQI people and families. And it's taken me around the country. I've gotten to visit all kinds of families and all kinds of communities. Uh, I've had the opportunity to speak with and meet with people who come from all kinds of experiences. The truth is, in America, Children of LGBTQI parents and LGBTQI people of all ages experience discrimination in all kinds of ways and experience it consistently and at rates that are far higher than most people imagine. Still more than 40% of our youth experience some kind of bullying in school. There are constantly stories about our trans community being harassed and murdered especially trans women of color, arguably the most marginalized community in America. We have tremendous disparities based on the colors of our skin, based on our economic status, uh, and just where we were born and where we grew up. I think what's interesting is that there was this idea that we all had, and that we still all hold on to because there's such promise here that the Internet would eliminate these differences. It so clearly has not. I pass by the George Washington Bridge on a daily basis and I look at it and I'm reminded every day about Tyler Clemente, who was just over in New Jersey. And we have this this notion that if you're close to a place like New York or if you're in a metropolitan area, you feel supported and you're in an LGBTQI-friendly environment. He was just over just over the bridge and came to this bridge halfway to New York City and killed himself. He took his life because he he couldn't see a world in which he could be happy. And suicide is the result of of mental illness uh, in in certain ways. I don't I don't want to overstate my expertise in it, but we know that the world around us contributes to our sense of our own ability to live in it. And the bullying and harassment we experience really impacts how we imagine ourselves existing. And so when I think of Tyler and I I think of stories like his, I think we have so much work to do, so much outreach we have to do to create safe, secure, and supportive communities wherever people are. It's not enough to be close to a metropolitan area. People in New York City Youth in New York City don't feel safe. PFLAG NYC, one of our great organizations here in New York City, still serves thousands of people every year because right here in New York City, families feel harassed or bullied or unsupported. On the other hand, I know families who have chosen to move back to Alabama, for example, so that their lesbians, I know more than one family like this, lesbian couples who have chosen to move back to Alabama so that their kids could experience some of the great aspects of life in Alabama. 
This is a state that passed a law to allow adoption agencies to discriminate against LGBTQI people because for some reason they think the faith of the people who work at an adoption agency should take priority over the needs of their state's children. So it's a complicated tapestry. I know so many people who live in places where they, on one hand, can tell you horror stories, and on the other hand, can't imagine living anywhere else. And so many people who would live somewhere else and can't, because we don't live in a, in a country in which most people are easily mobile. This is one of the things that's so interesting about the LGBTQI community. We are born of every color, every religion or not, every economic status, every demographic you can imagine. We are born into it, and we are born in every place, in every corner of the earth. And it is through that and the experiences we gain that we then walk in the world and can impact the world. The LGBTQI community, and specifically the LGBTQI family community, is the most diverse community that has ever existed. LGBTQI-headed families are vastly more likely to be multiracial couples and way more likely to be multiracial, a multiracial family, parents and children. They come from everywhere and then they come together and they share those experiences and form a new family and in, in a new community. The impact that this can have on our country is just tremendous. It is the impact that identity and experience coming together to raise the next generation. It's really immeasurable. We've already seen these youth grow up to be these incredible ambassadors. Not that it should be their job, but so many of them have chosen to do this because they come from diversity. They come from unique experiences, and yet so many of them say that they they don't feel like their experience was so unique. And that, in and of itself, is a message that is changing communities because these youth stand up and say, you know what? I am a child who doesn't look like my parents. We ha- we all have different color skin. My parents are both queer. I'm adopted. My sister is, uh, you know, through a surrogate. They have these, cra- you know, these stories that we used to call these crazy stories. They're not crazy. They say, and you know what? I grew up in school, and maybe they have some stories of some harassment, and sometimes they have, even have horror stories. But most of the time, they say, well, I grew up in a school where I was just one of the kids. And families that had a problem with us quickly learned that they had to either keep it to themselves or that there's no reason to have a problem with us. And I've heard these stories over and over and over again as I've gone around the country and I've spoken with people. And it just is a a tremendous thing to watch people tell their own stories and to watch audiences hear these stories and realize that there is hope, that there is a way out, that there's a way towards acceptance and support for LGBTQI people and LGBTQI families that comes not just from advocacy, which we need, right? Because Alabama, we have Nebraska, we just won a case, thank goodness, um, against a discriminatory bill. In Texas, we have this new um, anti-trans bill. Uh, You know, we all know about what happened in North Carolina and Indiana. These are things that are happening now. So we need to advocate, but it is that our community is everywhere that is ultimately changing hearts and minds in a, in a truly magnificent way.
From your perspective, are there any differences between your family and a straight family? Every family is different, right? But I think in the, in the important ways, no. Every family has to figure out their story and overcome their own hurdles, whatever they may be. Every family is unique. So we as an LGBTQI-headed family, as an adoptive family, as a, a multiracial family, as a family that lives in New York, as a middle-class family, you know, we have to contend with all of those things in whatever ways they impact us. But every family does. Uh, so I don't think I don't think there is such um, there are differences that are kind of these what people assume would be you know straight families are like this and gay families are like that I don't think those those differences exist I do think that like with all families our experience helps us see the world in different ways and being part of a multiracial family has pushed me to see the world in ways that frankly I probably wouldn't have or wouldn't have thought to really explore and dedicate myself to otherwise. And I'm certainly grateful for that. What advice would you give to other gay couples with children? Breathe. I always, uh, I get this question a lot. I actually wrote for a book on gay parenting. Uh, they asked me to write the, uh, the epilogue. And I read through the, all the stories that were in this book. And ultimately, my message is to breathe. Breathe and let it be. Explore, come to a decision on how you're going to become a family. There are lots of ways. All of us can be families. But whatever you choose, make it yours. It's going to be exciting and it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging and it's going to be incredible and life-changing. Now, there are some specific things that LGBTQI parents need to worry about. There are legal implications. You should always work with professionals who have real experience with LGBTQI families and LGBTQI law. Right? Work with attorneys and doctors and adoption agencies and foster agencies that know how to support your family. Do your research. Know your rights. Be ready with the information, always. Keep your documents on you. We live in a world where it is far from certain that our families are accepted and protected. You know, so there's some basic things like that to do. But overall, just breathe. Breathe into it. Allow yourself to experience it because every family's experience is different. I know families whose children were you know, where, where nurses and social workers tried to separate children from their intended parents in the hospital when the children were born. And I know other families that have never knowingly experienced any kind of discrimination. And I know families who have experienced both of those, both in the Deep South and families who are used to all kinds of discrimination in their lives because uh, of the color of their skin or of their religion and didn't experience this when creating their family and vice versa. So whatever you experience, it's going to become the unique story of your family. Knowing your rights, working with people who are culturally competent, that's going to be key to surviving it. But accept the experience and know that it's going to make your life and your children's lives that much richer. This has been a great conversation, Gabriel. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's uh, it was a pleasure. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. 
This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Alex, Samantha, Andrea, Max, Quinn, Druve, Nico, Lauren, Dante, Lucas, Jamie, and me, Sarah. Our assistant producers are Alex Mintz and Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sofus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.